0: But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count, your upbringing, your education, your environment.
1: Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who a theory that is... A pigeon learned that pecking the disk produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? what we
0: call schedules of the reinforce and you can schedule it so that reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. Us there's a response with pigeon tucking. Welcome to episode two of Spit and Twitch is the Animal Cognition podcast i 'm your host, Dave Ribeck. The response to episode one was pretty good with Chris Sturdy, and people are subscribing, and that pleases me. So thanks, everybody, and uh, keep listening, get the word out there. Uh, And it seems like people on, say, the Comparative Cognition website, uh, on the Facebook group at least, seem to be enjoying them. And I hope some of you other people are enjoying them as well. So for episode two, uh, sticking with the University of Alberta, I've got Neil McMillan, who's a postdoc at... University of Alberta. Neil did his undergrad degree at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. Uh, He did his thesis in Angelo Santi's lab at at Laurier. Then he moved on to the University of Western Ontario, or as they officially want you to call it now, Western U, because of their branding. Well, I won't. I'm going to call it the University of Western Ontario, because that's what it says on my my bachelor's degree, darn it. Um, Anyway, so he worked in Bill Roberts' lab and uh, did his MSC and then later PhD there uh, in Uh, 2013 he got his phd and then of course moved on to alberta where he is uh, today with chris sturdy and marcy spatch um we talked about quite a few things uh both of us have in common spending time in bill roberts lab because i was a postdoc with bill and we also uh talked a little bit about how i couldn't uh, for years for some reason i could never remember his name so uh hope you enjoy my conversation with some guy All right. So as you just heard in my uh, intro, my pre-recorded intro, which uh, I'm guessing what we're going to talk about. So if it doesn't happen, I'll have to go back and re-record it, uh, and that would be that would be a snack of work. Um, so today on on, on the podcast, uh, got uh, Neil Mc Mac- yeah Neil McMillan uh, from University of Alberta. How's it going, man? Good. How are uh, you? Not so bad. You know, uh, just what's it like there? Because it's like it's going up to like thirty thousand today. Well, I'm probably exaggerating some.
1: Yeah, we had uh, thirty-three degrees yesterday, forty percent humidity. That was pretty
0: nice. <laughs> okay, as long as the humidity is below like eighty, you're fine, right? Yeah, you're, <laughs> and you're you're an Ontario guy, right? So you're used, I am an Ontarian, so so this southern is, Ontario, southern
1: Ontario.
0: So <laughs> yeah, I mean, even up here, up in St. Marie, we still get some humidity. Nothing like down south. W- where are you from originally?
1: So I'm originally from Kingston.
0: Oh, okay, okay. I love Kingston. In fact, I used to go to a podcasting conference in Kingston. Um, yeah, and you did your undergrad at Laurier, right? Yes, I did. With Angelo Santi, I did. Angelo. Now, the thing, I, the impression I always had about Angelo was that he had he has this encyclopedic knowledge of every paper ever
1: published. <laughs> well, Bill has that a little bit too. Oh, oh there's no doubt. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. So I've I've always uh, felt a little bit inadequate about that, about how well I was able to remember papers because <laughs> I always had um, supervisors who. I would I would bring up something that I had just found or right. something that um I was really excited about and they'd say, Oh yeah, I remember that and then they'd start going on about it I'm like, no, this is supposed to be really exciting.
0: Yeah, see Bill, Bill could do that, but I think Angelo could actually give you the page numbers. So that, that was the thing that was kind of gets me about Angelo. And of course an old student of mine, an uh, old honor student of mine, Dwayne Keo, was in uh Angelo's lab uh, before yeah. your time.
1: Yeah, he was actually my TA for um my my third year. Uh, research methods in animal course, oh, oh poor you um,
0: <laughs> <clears throat> how did you understand that new accent um, so what, so you were doing this stuff with with angelo what, what what drove you uh, as an undergrad because it 's it's not a common choice, as I think both of us know to mm-hmm. do animal cognition, what drove you as an undergrad? did it decide to try to study it?
1: Oh, it was one of those weird things where you just sort of get started without realizing that you 're doing it and then eventually you realize, oh, I actually kind of like this. So yeah. I, I took the intro course with Angelo mm-hmm. and um, learned about learning, and that was fine, and I, I enjoyed the course enough to take the third-year-level course in it, the fourth-year-level course in it. And by the time I finished uh, the research course, I realized that I actually really liked this because it right. actually gave me a chance to do a whole bunch of writing okay, uh, and to train my own rat, which was really neat. right, And... Um, so at, at the end of that course, I asked Angelo if he had any space in the lab over the summer to hire me as an RA and nice. I, I really wanted some, um, research experience. And he said, well, I don't know about the summer, but how about right now? And so I ended up starting in, uh, the winter term Okay, and, uh, I just stayed right through did my honors thesis there. Um, it was, uh, really good because I got a lot of hands-on research experience Yeah. Um, in a, in a way it sort of feels more sciencey than, um, a lot of uh, psychology, which ends up sort of being, okay, you design the experiment, yeah. you get, uh, someone to run it for you. And then you look at the data, whereas this, you're actually, um, you know, working extensively with the subjects every day. Yes. Um, so, so I really enjoyed that part of it. Right. And, um, sort of being in the lab environment. Sure.
0: Um, yeah. I found as an undergrad that, cause I worked with Nancy Ennis uh, at Western and uh, I, I found that like the whole time, to- like, it took forever to collect data. Mm-hmm. Like I remember my friends saying I've, I've collected my data this week and it's like, I've been doing it for six <laughs> months, pal. Um, I think I got the grade I got on my honors thesis just because I put in all that time. I've read it yeah. since it, it deserved about a 73. That's what I'd give it. <laughs> Uh, it got higher than that, but it didn't deserve it. I also misspelled the guy's name, but it doesn't matter in, <laughs> in the thing, in the paper. But uh, yeah, I, I found that like it was kind of fun... And it's also, you know, so you, you look at data each day, and it looks good, and then something then it doesn't look good for four days, and then you go, oh, God, no, the whole world's collapsing <laughs> around me, right? And that is sort of, I mean, as Principal Skinner said on the, on the Simpsons, you know, science has all the fun of sitting still, paying attention, and writing down numbers. <laughs> and, and there are days when it really feels like that. But so they, at the same yeah. time, it's
1: not like the, you know, your, your average social psychologist, they, they run experiments for maybe a week, yeah. but then they spend the next six months actually analyzing the data and trying and figuring out all the little things about it. Oh, sure. And, yeah. and, and I really like the fact that you can actually in animal work, you're actually doing it every day and you really can't, um, there's no opportunity to slack off. Really. It's, no. It actually keeps you doing no. a little bit every day.
0: Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not for the, uh, the faint of heart. It's not, it's, 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 not the, you know, I go in five days a week. No, that doesn't work like that. Uh, just not the way you, the animals don't know it's the weekend. <laughs> Um, so, you went on and you applied to grad school and you ended up at Western. Um, what what drew, drew you to a Bill Roberts' lab?
1: Uh, well, so Bill and Angelo have always been uh, really close and they've written a few papers together and yep. stuff. And so I'd actually had the, the opportunity to tour Bill's lab when we went to um, Western at one time when I was doing my undergrad uh, to see a talk by Fred Dyer on. Oh, yeah. Uh, B's and nice. navigation and stuff. It was really, really cool. And I got to tour Bill's lab at that point. And so pretty much as soon as I got home, I sent Bill an email saying, Are you taking applicants for grad school? Nice. And he had had he retired at that point yet or is he would he yeah I mean, so he, yeah bill was the last of mandatory retirement so he at that point he'd been retired i think for about two years or so yeah
0: and okay. he, yeah, I mean, it's funny. He's I'm, still you know, going. Oh, <laughs> well, he is. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I remember when he had retired. I, I was talking to him at Co three, and he said, "It's it's a shame because I'm finally doing some good work." And I, I looked at him, and I with this, I, spy, I so turned, most everything else he does. Yeah, I turned my head sideways like a dog that doesn't understand when you're when you're yelling at it. And I kind of grabbed him by the. I'd never done something like this. I grabbed him by the shoulders, and I said, "Do you know who you are?" <laughs> he really doesn't <laughs> no I, I know and th- that's actually very refreshing and i, I find in fact that th- the whole field generally is actually full of pretty cool people so yeah absolutely um what did you end up doing in your in your for your phd
1: uh in terms of thesis work yeah like what was the
0: what, what do you think was the? Like, what was the big question you were going after
1: yeah so the the it was it was actually kind of funny especially for, for my phd work specifically was uh really really broad just focused around timing and it was mm-hmm. Um, I ended up doing a bunch of different studies that were all um, not really necessarily intending to look directly at timing. Mm -hmm. I did uh, one looking at uh, pigeon um, keeping track of order and another looking at pigeons um, uh, comparing two different time intervals and another one where they were making a choice across time um, that weren't necessarily uh, looking for uh, the specific thing that I ended up Actually, studying which was uh, essentially how pigeons integrate temporal information, and, and sometimes they ignore it, and sometimes they really use it.
0: Right. I mean, it's it's funny. I when you think about time, it's one of those. Uh, if, if Ken Cheng were here, uh, he, he would tell us that it's you know if you look back to Immanuel Kant, it's it's one of those. Uh, it's like a natural concept almost. It's you know time and space. I saw a talk by Ken Wentz when he said you know time space and and the, the universe and everything was this title. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, really, when you think about it, there are some things that all animals should do, and one of them is keep track of time. And yet, oftentimes don't realize how important timing is, right?
1: Well, and especially for humans, and this is the thing that's always fascinated me about time, is that humans, we think everything in terms of clocks when it comes yes. to time. And so we're always thinking about seconds and minutes and hours, and that's the way that we think about time, but animals don't have any of that. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, even if you know your your average uh, person listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. if I asked them how long they thought we had been talking, they'd be able to give us a pretty good estimate. Yes. Even though they haven't been keeping track of time, even though they haven't been counting yeah. uh, the seconds and the minutes, uh, and so there is something really deeply ingrained that's not dependent upon that language, that's not dependent upon yeah. um, that really human version of time. Yeah. And that's the thing that I find really cool, the setting time in animals.
0: Well, it's also the case that, I mean, it's it's a fundamental property of the universe, and every species ought to be able to do this. It's, you know, there's, uh, I, I'm, I've always been interested in things that are special about different animals, but something like timing, it needn't be, you could use it almost any animal to do it, and it probably should be, uh, it should work the same way in any animal. I mean, when you look at the genes that encode uh, uh, circadian growth uh, in, in slime mold, it's, the, it's, it's hybridizes 99% with the one that controls uh, the development of the SCN in, in hamsters, which controls the circadian clock. So even at the circadian level, I mean, you would expect it to always to be the case. But the same thing with these shorter intervals.
1: Yeah, um, and we're and- used to thinking about uh, you know, animals being able to keep track of sort of what time of day it is. Yes. But even this interval timing idea, yep. even the idea of being able to figure out roughly how long something's lasted. Uh, I mean, we even know from stuff from Mike Robert and David Sherry that yep. uh, bumblebees are able to keep track of durations of time up to, you know, uh, 30, 60 seconds.
0: It's funny you mentioned Mike because Mike was uh, my honor student when I was a, a postdoc in, in Bill's lab.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, and then he ended up I think he worked for Bill for a year and then he went off and uh, did his PhD with Dave Sherry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you know Mike out of curiosity? Probably not. eh? No, I don't think
1: I've ever actually met Mike.
0: Yeah. Uh, People say uh, that they think we're related because we have exactly the same sense of humor. Uh, It's, it's actually kind of disturbing. (laughs) Is he that (laughs) pale? No, I said, I said sense (laughs) of humor. Uh, (laughs) It's funny uh, thinking back to that too, because you were in Bill's lab for geez, what five years kind of thing, Six six years. And, I had met you like a hundred times and I never could remember your name. And it drove me nuts. (laughs) And I would talk to you and uh, it's hard when
1: you only see someone once a year. Yeah.
0: You know, uh, is it a blind joke? Uh, So we were, so yeah, I mean, but I mean, I knew other people, it was not a problem, but I would see you and we'd talk and we'd hang out and go for beer or whatever. And then, I finally, this year uh, on ResearchGate, uh, one of the publications came up. I think it was I Was Following Sturdy, and it was the that review paper that you uh, were, have just published. And you sent me a copy of it, and it had your little picture on ResearchGate. And I went, oh, my God, now I know his name. <laughs> and I, I had to come clean and admit it this year at CO3. And I, I thought your comeback was great when I was leaving the room. We were all around having drinks, and you said, nice to meet you. <laughs> that was uh, I, I, Kudos to you. So shifting gears a bit, that paper's pretty cool. And it's a bit different than some of the stuff because you're not too heavily into spatial stuff, are you? Uh,
1: yeah, a little bit more since I started working with Marcia. So yeah, sure, of course. The way that works. But um, it was never something that we directly studied. We always used space in – like we, we did radio maze tests and that sort of thing sure. in Bill's lab. But that was sort of more of a means to an end rather yes. than what we were actually studying
0: because uh, yeah, Bill was the uh, he's sort of the inventor, I believe, of the seventeen-arm radial maze. Uh, <laughs> the, more, the more arms you can put on it, the better. Oh, I know. <laughs> Some of those diagrams you draw, and you like, how, how do you get all these arms? <laughs> um, so, but it's interesting because in, in that recent paper, you've talked about looking at avian cognition, right, and and, and talking about sort of space and communication and again not thinking of them well somewhat thinking of them i guess as specialized things but looking at sort of general cognitive abilities right Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and thinking about uh, birds as being smarter than we give them credit for a lot of the time
0: yeah i mean i remember seeing a a headline i think it was after an international ornithology congress uh, that sarah shuttleworth went to in uh ottawa and there was a little Write up about it because it was a big conference. In, 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 in I think the Globe and Mail, and it said "bird brain" is not an insult. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, do you think of studying? Because right now you work with, because you work with Chris and with Marcia, right? Mm-hmm. So are you, you do stuff with chickadees and such, but also with pigeons?
1: Yeah, yeah, and pigeons have always been. Um, my my personal favorite study animals. so well, they're, they're, easy, they're
0: easy to work with, and they they uh, they they live well, They're very charismatic, don't you know? Yeah, and and they live forever. That's the other thing, right? The the longest living
1: pigeon in captivity was thirty five years old.
0: Well, we had one in Bill's lab back in jeez when I was a postdoc there. So it was about ninety four, and the animal poor animal died. And I mean, we we were really worried, and we called the university vet. and He came over, he did an autopsy, and he said uh, old age. Yeah. well, They
1: they end up being like 15 by the time we we send them to the farm. And that's not a euphemism for everybody listening out there. We actually had a farm that we sent them to. Nice.
0: Yeah. When I was in Newfoundland (laughs) and I had my lab, when I left uh, there, I just, I let them go uh, because I had wild pigeons, feral pigeons that I caught. Oh, nice. Yeah. And we had a a permit and I thought, well, what am I going to do with these pigeons? Well, I'll just let them go. And I took them in a box in the car and then put them in the backyard, let them go. They all sort of walked out, kind of all looked at me, all went and flew up onto a Electrical wire, wire, all four of them sat there looking at each other and they all went their separate ways. It was the neatest thing.
1: Yeah, well, and, and That's what I always find um, really interesting about pigeons is how well they've done in cities and the wild since they were released because they used to be like domesticated pigeons. Yeah. Uh, right up until the 50s were really widely used for communication because that was most of what we had for communication. Yeah, And then totally. people just let them go. And most of the pigeons in cities that you see now are um, – the descendants of the pigeons that were let go previously. And so that it's essentially our fault that we, that we've littered our cities with <laughs> pigeons, but Pigeon you, yeah. you can imagine letting a, letting a bunch of chimpanzees loose in the city. I don't think that they'd be doing as well as the pigeons would be. Well,
0: I think we all know that would lead to a planet of the apes and we really <laughs> don't need that. Um, so when you look at, I mean, well, you're looking at things like uh, spatial ability that, like I said, you, you've, you've had some experience with it in the past and, of course, now, of course, with Marcia stuff. And But you had more experience with that than you did with, with communication stuff. Did have, have you found that there's a lot of parallels there?
1: Uh, a lot of parallels between, between communication and space? Yeah, or, or are they, like, way different? Um, and, and so I come from more of the... That sort of higher cognitive yep. um, way of looking at things. And so uh, when I'm personally studying or looking at communication, what I'm actually thinking about is concepts or categories. Sure. Uh, as opposed to uh, just the things that uh, two creatures are bouncing back and forth. Right. And so um, I think of them both as uh, looking at behaviors to study. Um, the, the neat ways that animals are actually able to process the world.
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one of the things, just again, just to harken back to something my, my old supervisor said, Sarah Shuttleworth, she, she said, when, at that ornithology congress, apparently someone said, what, what species do you study? And she said, I don't study species, I study problems.
1: Yeah, yeah well, that, was, that was always the thing. That, so at Western, we actually switched, um, they, they built this big, beautiful avian research facility. Yes, And uh, Bill and I, we, we stayed in the, the old animal labs, partially or mostly because Bill had accumulated quite a bit of space. But right. um, people used to ask me, why didn't you move over to the aping facility? And I said, well, you know, I don't, I don't really study pigeons. I just study brains that happen to have wings. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and, and, and as we've mentioned, pigeons are a great test subject. They're, they're, they work and they've been studied all to hell and looking at sort of general cognitive things. Um, The communication stuff's interesting to me because, you know, I've worked with songbirds quite a bit, but I've never – I mean, to to the point where when I hear chickadee dee dee -dee outside, I I wonder if I've screwed something up. Um, (laughs) You know, I still have flashbacks. uh, But (laughs) – it's like, I was in Nam, man. And that's Charlie, except it's Charlie the Chicken. Uh,
1: yeah, that's our version of PTSD.
0: <laughs> that's right. It's the closest we come. It's tough, tough life. Um, but it's funny because I don't ever think about the communication stuff. I, I think basically about their memory because that's the stuff that I've always been interested in. Right. Um, and one of the things that you talked about uh, – in the, that review paper, which I really liked reading, by the way, uh, it was it's really nice. Uh, um, you, you talk about the, sort of this transformational approach where you, you, you sort of screw things around, right? Like you move one set of cues and don't move, move another. right? Um, are we in da- if, if we're doing that kind of stuff, is there not a danger, though? Like when we say, okay, this is a hierarchical representation, um, is it maybe not the case that sometimes we say, well, space is more important than color? like which I've said before. Um, but how do we know that the space was as spacey as the color was color.
1: (laughs) How do you compare? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think that's a difficult question, but it's also the question that faces animals. Like, um, how do you compare Mm -hmm. two pieces of information that are in two different modalities? Yeah. um, and it, I mean, it, it's, it's also difficult because, you know, we, we work across species and different species have yeah. different predilections to preferring geometry or preferring uh, color or preferring just visual versus auditory. And sure. the, that's the other thing is that we almost always study everything in the visual domain because that's what humans are good at.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: And then we, you know, we will say, oh, you know, this animal species is stupid because they can't do a visual task very well meanwhile vision really isn't important to this species they want to use uh audition or they want to use olfaction to be able to find what they're what they're looking for and so i think this is something that we're really um coming to grips with is uh how do you compare things across uh, different senses how do you um increase or decrease uh one dimension without affecting the others and so i think that's if anything, that's the really cool part about um, designing mm-hmm. these experiments is actually figuring out how, how can I do this in a way that I'm actually comparing across either the species or yeah. across these um, particular dimensions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think when you, when you compare across species, uh, <clears throat> then we can, you know, we can say, okay, in this task, this species uses space over color and this one doesn't or space overshadows color, and it doesn't in this species. And in that case, it it's, 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 makes some sense. Uh, like I said, I, I do sometimes worry that uh, we just get so wrapped up in a methodology that we just keep using it, and then we I, I, then you're like, what, are, what am I doing, right? <laughs> so, well, I, and now and then I have these existential crises, is what I'm saying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I always think of um, – the the study in pigeons and I don't have encyclopedic knowledge of of studies, so I can't remember (laughs) the authors, but uh, looking at um, how they categorize colors, because we have specific categories for colors. We think of one color being orange and one color being red, even though it's, it's a completely continuous dimension where it's just the the nanometers of the wavelength of, of light. And if you look at pigeons and where they set those categories, they set them in different places where humans do, but we always design our stimuli around the way that we see color and mm-hmm. not the way that they see color. Yeah. And yeah. the same thing, you know, even, even uh, your average layperson with their dog uh, that, you know, buys their dog a bright red toy because they think that's going to be the most exciting for them. Meanwhile, dogs are dichromats; They can't yeah. actually really determine red at all. It just looks sort of grayish.
0: Yeah. Uh, that always kind of kills me, you know, yeah, uh, the- you know how to, I mean, people ask those kind of questions all the time too how do to dogs dog see et cetera uh I don't know about you but I, I get asked those questions by people like i, I you know uh, my my dog uh, pees on the floor all the time well you're an expert well, tell it to stop yeah. So, <laughs> but yeah it, that's, that's that's an interesting point because i mean we we one of the hard things hardest things to do is not get inside the animal's head and not anthropomorphize um as much as you you know when you design the experiments uh, and when you interpret them you're not doing that one hopes but when you're thinking about – now and then when you're thinking about what they're thinking, which is what we do, um, you almost can't help but get inside their heads. And I know when I teach uh, learning, I'd say the, on the first day, don't try to get inside the animal's head. It doesn't think with language. Uh, I don't know how it thinks. Uh, you know, um, I, I
1: think you have to allow for that. But at the same time, it's also a balancing act because you don't want to anthropomorphize, yeah. but you also don't want to be anthropocentric. You don't want to be yes. – just coming at it from the, the perspective of the human. You don't want to be just thinking of humans as uh, totally special and not having anything to do with the rest of the animal kingdom because we are animals as well. And, exactly. And um, what, we're, what we're doing when we're studying animals, um, by extension, is studying ourselves, even though there's all these differences and it's not... Um, at all clear cut how that relates and you know people ask me actually <laughs> I remember my uh at one point my godfather asking me so when are you going to graduate to studying humans <laughs> and, and great. I, I wasn't offended or anything because no, no. because you know you get used to hearing that sort of thing and that's the way that we think about uh humans as being separate and special and having nothing to do with animals but um you know, I study animals, but at the same time, part of that is uh, thinking more about uh, where humanity comes from and uh, uh, how we work yeah. without all of the the language nonsense on top.
0: Yeah, I mean, when my mother when I first met my mother in law, she wasn't my mother in law then; she was my girlfriend's mother. Um, she asked me, "So you're gonna, you're doing this to try to figure out?" something about memory and then help people with Alzheimer's disease. I said, no, (laughs) no, no, I want to have the universe works. (laughs) A little tiny, tiny, tiny part of it. That's all I, somebody that does that with it. Cool. But, um, I'm not, I'm not curing cancer here. (laughs) Um, Switching gears again a bit, again to the recent paper you have in JEP, uh, which uh, recent went three years ago. They changed their name to JEP Animal Animal c-
1: Learning c- and Cognition, cognition. It used to be, and it was it was yeah. such a missed opportunity to call it Animal Behavior and Cognition, and that it could just been ABC, and <laughs> we could have actually <laughs> awesome. remembered.
0: That's right, <laughs> JEP ABC. Um, so that paper, uh, and you did that. That's with Marcia and Chris, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Uh, so one of the things that I've been studying a lot. Um, in the last few years is uh, what's called a mid-session reversal task. And so um, for the people that uh, don't know what reversal means, it literally just means uh, changing contingencies from one to the other. And so if you present a pigeon with a green stimulus and a red stimulus, and you always give them food if they pick green and you never give them food if they pick red, uh, then they learn that they pick just the green stimulus. But then – uh, what we do is, of course, we need to screw around with them at, at some point, and so we reverse that, and now they only get food if they pick red, and they don't get food if they pick green. Right. And um, this is a, a really old method of, of studying how they learn because then you continually reverse that, and they get better and better every time you mm-hmm. reverse it at changing what they're doing. Yeah. And what we've uh, more recently been looking at is what happens if you reverse that. Uh, in the middle of what they're doing. So um, you give them 40 trials of green is correct, red is incorrect. Mm-hmm. And then the, uh, all of a sudden, the next 40 trials, red is correct and green is not correct anymore. And so it's it's all within the one session. Nothing, nothing else has changed. Pigeon's still in the box. They have to figure out uh, that what they're doing isn't working anymore. And so... Um, sort of unsurprisingly, it takes them a little while to figure out that green isn't paying off and that now red is. Sure. But the really interesting thing that they do is they actually start pecking red before red is correct. They actually anticipate what's actually going to happen. And what we've determined over a couple of studies is that they do this based on time. And this was this old thing where I I, I started doing this thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I'm branching out from time and then all of a sudden it all comes comes back. back Yeah.
0: Just when they, they, you know, they think I'm out,
1: they pull me back in. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, so what we did in the most recent study was actually to break that down. So instead of presenting them both colors at the same time, every trial, we only present them with one. Okay. And they can either peck the stimulus or not peck the stimulus and the stimulus goes away after a few seconds. Right. And so if they peck green now in the first 40 trials, when green appears, uh, they get food. And in the first 40 trials, if they peck red, then they get a timeout. They have to sit in the corner for 10 seconds. Right, And then it changes the exact same. So after 40 trials, um, they, it, it switches. So now they have to peck red and they have to avoid pecking green. And the thing that we notice is um, in, when you don't have them as a choice simultaneous between the two of them, uh, all of the errors that they make are to the stimulus that currently isn't correct. They'll take the time but they never miss when it's an actual correct stimulus, and so they always peck green during the first forty trials. They always peck red during the last forty trials. Okay. And so the timing thing uh, seems almost to be uh, something that's uh, uh, they're not able to inhibit. Something that's actually making them yeah. um, do these errors uh, as the middle of the session gets closer. Yeah,
0: it's basically an overshadowing effect, right?
1: A little bit of an, uh, an overshadowing or um, uh, like an intention thing or just that right. they have these two systems that uh, one is actually keeping track of what's going on trial to trial and one is the timing system. And they're, and they're using both and it's just going back to that idea of the, mm-hmm. the hierarchy that yep. they have um, different systems and different information coming into them at, at given times and they're using both to some degree.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and this is—I mean, if for those of you out there that are listening and aren't that into this stuff—if if, if you, you ever took intro psych and put on a pair of um, prisms that shifted the world over forty-five degrees or something like that—you know, the world shifted over forty-five degrees. You still walk into the wall <laughs> until until you you know uh, can adapt, and humans adapt pretty quickly, of course. But it's it's that same sort of thing. Um, that's a pretty cool effect, and it's the kind of thing that you could you could play with for I think quite a long time, right?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's nice because it's it's a new sort of procedure. We don't know very much about it. We haven't studied it in a lot of species. Actually, I'm just writing a paper now that uh, includes chickadees as one of the study species with midsection reversal. Nice. And um, so there's there's and there's a lot of little fiddly bits that you can change about it. So we've studied it um, with spatial stimuli, so just left and right, no mm-hmm. colors. We've studied it with uh, three stimuli and and having multiple reversals during the session Um, and all of these tell us a little bit more about the way that they process um, information, the way that they uh, actually interact with us and the way that then that information sort of integrates within the animal, how they actually uh, deal with the fact that they have time Mm -hmm. and they have spatial information. They have uh, red and green. They have all this different stuff happening.
0: Nice. Um, one of the things that Chris and I talked about last uh, episode was the sort of – a lot of people are getting really excited about imaging everything in psychology. It's like, put it, well, let's put put someone in, a, in an MRI and see if – That's how you get grant money. Yeah, I, I, exactly. Um, so the thing is, is, is that kind of stuff going to – do you think um, – and Chris and I were trying to figure this out if, if the future of comparative cognition – was this going to be a big deal in our area, in our subfield of psychology? And it was hard for us to know because we weren't—we don't have to try to be hot and cool anymore. <laughs> hot and cool. Uh, because we've got jobs. Um, but if you're out there... Like you said, trying to get grant money or, for example, just trying to find something that people find interesting enough that they want to interview you. And Chris said, well, you should talk talk to Neil because he's a postdoc and he's going to be out, he's out there you know, uh, now and then looking around. Um, do you think that we're going to fall under that sort of neuro spell or do you think that – or we're just going to have some of that and we're going to still have to do the clever behavioral work or is it going to be both or what?
1: Well, I think – it's it's difficult because you don't want to you don't want to offend the neuroscientists and say that oh no your your stuff is crap or anything like that. Or, because no that's not what I'm they, saying. Yeah. No no, I understand that. Um, and so uh, you know, personally I'm not terribly interested in uh, brain region activation and what that says about anything because to yes. me the important, the interesting thing is the effect that it has on behavior. Yes. What it actually changes about the the what the animal does, right? And I think a lot of the time that's actually what we care about. I think that's you know the the, the funny thing about um, neuro business and neuro marketing now. You know they they say <laughs> oh this activates this part of the brain, but marketers don't care about what part of the brain gets activated. No. Marketers should care about what effect it has on buying behavior.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so.
1: Uh, to me, and this is taking nothing away from the importance of the brain. <laughs> yeah, they, they are important. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it, is that when I'm, what I'm interested in studying is actually the, the endpoint behavior. Right. And what these cognitive mechanisms uh, have to do with that and vice versa. Right. I mean, it's, um, it's
0: funny. It reminds me, I, I remember as an undergrad, um, you know John Pierce, right? Yeah, so John Pierce comes to Western and he's just he's come to give a talk. He's doing a colloquium and he comes up to the labs. So he's looking around and he's asking me what I'm doing, and I'm just doing some stupid summer insert project that wasn't very good. Um, designed it myself. That was my fault. Uh, <laughs> my first summer insert. And a friend of mine, Gord Schachter, was doing this work uh, on uh, hippocampus and accumbens and uh, you know very physiological stuff. But the person he was working with in the in the in department of physiology didn't have as much lab space as where we were over with, with Bill and Nancy and everybody. So he asked me about my stuff, and I explained it to him, and he asked me some interesting questions. And then he asked Gord what he was doing. And Gord said, well, I'm doing this stuff on the hippocampus and the uh, nucleus accumbens. Do you know about the accumbens? And John Pierce looked at him and said, somewhere in the black box, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what a great answer, right? What a great <laughs> thing to say.
1: Uh, well, and um, like, I think I think we've both seen our share of terrible neuroscience studies that were – that had beautiful neuro results that were all based on terrible behavioral tasks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know,
1: they're, they're looking at something in the hippocampus and we're doing this spatial task and, and, and any behaviorist looks at that and says, well, you weren't studying space at all. You were, you know, you had this particular uh, beacon that was this color that they, they really don't need to know anything about the rest of the space, things like that. And so I think, Um, we're kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater here when we focus too much on the neuroscience and not enough on uh, what the actual behavior is. Yeah,
0: I agree with you. I mean, I think that I love that stuff. Heck, I I teach random and behavior, but I, I also, and I think it's really important, but I think it's important that someone knows how to design the clever behavioral end of it too. And I think the best people that are interested in things like behavioral neuroscience actually do that kind of stuff. Um, and I mean, I've got Bill Roberts and I have a publication in behavioral neuroscience where we didn't do anything invasive whatsoever. And the pigeons were not put right. in an MRI. Um, you know, uh, but we were still able to to look at the visual system and how it interacts in the separate visual systems of pigeons. Yeah. Yep. um, I really appreciate you coming on today, you Neil. Know, this is a lot of fun, uh, and I, I do, I, it's so nice that I can remember your name now. It's important. It's, it's, yeah, I, my memory. I, I'm actually kind of known for my memory, and um, I'm not at Angelo Santi level. But, <laughs> Sorry, uh, is
1: that what you're known for? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Also known for saying, bite me to guests on the show. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I really appreciate this. It was a great deal of fun, and it's really good to talk to you and to catch up. And uh, hopefully, uh, well, I guess I'll probably see you next year at CO3.
1: Yeah, sounds good.
0: Thanks, Dave. Um oh, I should ask you where uh if people want to follow you on on Twitter or some such thing, what would what's your Twitter handle?
1: Uh I believe it's N
0: Okay. So you don't post that often?
1: Not often, but yeah. So N M C M I L L.
0: Okay. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dbroadbeck. Uh you can also find uh other stuff I do at broken dot area.com and davebroadbeck.com. Uh anyway, like I said, Neil, thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, cheers, Dave. For many
0: scientists it's your experiences in life that count, your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist
1: John Watson, who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered, or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement.
0: The main thing is what what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward, and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot on the wall, and you can reinforce with food. But you don't reinforce every time, perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute or something like that. There are a very large number of of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. poster and uh, they were asking you to do something that, really really that you so so some like. a that's think the thing. number uh, this, uh, uh, this um, the idea was to be able to connect the dots by drawing straight lines, never lifting the, the paper. And the business buzz was thinking outside the box,
1: involved being able to point the line outside the box. So for our bodies yeah.
0: share the same genome, and so they will try to... So we are a clone, if you want, and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next
1: generation. In this case, it's a conflicting system. And um, for that reason, this is very interesting. This is a parasite, and this is
0: um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't
1: look at all like the like a host and nevertheless they managed to use precise trickery to make them do what they want.